We often think about curiosity as a way to get information. And yes, it does do that. But there's also a much bigger opportunity that many leaders miss. Going a bit deeper with curiosity so others can be seen and heard. In this episode, four phrases that will help you do that better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 654. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the things I hear again and again from our members and our listeners is the desire to connect well with others, to support the people that are inside of our teams and our organizations, and as part of that, to make sure that people are seen and heard. Now, so many of us have such a heart for that, and yet it is challenging. Despite our good intentions, sometimes taking that step to decide what can we actually do and say, and sometimes not say, to be sure that people are seen and heard in a way that's genuine and authentic. Today, I am so glad to welcome an expert who has done so much thinking and work on this and support of others to help us do a better job at really connecting well. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Scott Shigeoka. He is an internationally recognized curiosity expert, speaker, and author. He is known for translating research into strategies that promote positive well-being and connected relationships around the globe, including at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and through his popular courses at the University of Texas at Austin. Scott implements his curiosity practices with leaders in the public sector, Fortune 500 companies, Hollywood, media organizations, educational institutions, and small businesses. He is the author of the book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. Scott, what a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to be on the show. I'm an avid listener, so to be on the other side, it is a surreal, humbling, exciting opportunity. Well, <laughs> so happy to be on. I had the same thought reading through the book and just thinking about the work you're doing at helping us to connect so well with others. Uh, so much perspective that I've gained from your work already. And you know, one of the things that struck me as I read is a couple of lines you write early on in the book, specifically about managers. You say, managers often get one major thing wrong about curiosity. They tend to limit their definition of curiosity as a force to get information. Mm -hmm. And curiosity, of course, is a way to get information from others in the world, but it's limiting. What's, mm -hmm. What's limiting about it? Yeah, so we often think about curiosity, the desire to understand as this intellectual pursuit solely, that it's about extracting information, going on that rabbit hole on Wikipedia, or you know, looking through that research paper and figuring out what the gem is in it. And that's definitely one helpful use case for curiosity. But I also like to remind people that we can move from the brain, the mind, and move it down into the heart. And curiosity from the heart 
is really about how can our desire to understand be a force for connection? How can we understand someone so much that we see them and hear them and that they feel like they matter to you? And that is what's so exciting for me about curiosity, especially in the world that we live in. You know, today we're in what I call the era of incuriosity, where so many of us are turning away from one another. Yeah. And we often feel like we're connected because, of course, we see lots of digital artifacts of each other on pictures and Instagram and audio and all the things that we see regularly. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have that connection there. And you make a distinction in your work between shallow curiosity and deep curiosity. What's the yeah. difference between them? Yeah, I'm from Hawaii, so I love the ocean as like a metaphor. And so I, I often think about the ocean as the shallow and the deep parts, right? And there's none is better than the other. Shallow is not better than deep and vice versa. They're just different parts of the ocean. And curiosity is very similar to that. It's on a spectrum. You have shallow on one side, which really helps you to, you know, understand, hey, what's your name? Oh, your name's Dave. Oh, cool. Like, what do you do for work? And oh, I've got this great podcast. And okay, where do you live? And like, you start to really understand some bits of information. It gets you to know one another. But as you move down the spectrum from that shallow curiosity to deep curiosity, you start to dive beneath the surface and you start to see things that you wouldn't see at first glance because it's underneath that surface area. You have to really like go down, ask the hard and powerful and interesting questions that help you to understand who they are truly, their values, stories, their relationships, what what they really want out of life. And you might ask a question like, what's your name, which is shallow curiosity. But then you might ask, what's the story of your name, which is deep curiosity. And, and what's the story of your name gives you so much more insight. It gives you information about their culture, about who named them, about their relationship with the people who named them, their feelings about what a name is. Maybe they don't know anything about the story of their name, and it inspires them to go out and search for more information and have conversations with those who named them. So that deep curiosity is is richer, and it's beautiful. And, and just like the ocean, it's not better than the shallow side. Mm. It's just the shallow is a gateway, hopefully, to entering to deep curiosity and accessing it. And like, if I continue the analogy, you don't get to the deep part without going through the shallow part too. So there's Absolutely. there's some, like you say, it's not it's not necessarily better or worse. And yet, we, like most of us want to, at least in some of our relationships, particularly our close personal relationships, the relationships with the people we work with closely, the the relationships with the people that we support in our organizations. I know a lot of leaders really do want to have that deeper connection. And it is the attention's there, but sometimes the the how-to is a little mm. bit frustrating and challenging for us. And one of the things I really appreciate, you have a HBR article that's out on thinking about just some phrases that we can use that just as a starting point, help us to get a little bit better at making it more likely that others are seen and heard around us. And I thought looking at a couple of those mm. phrases might be really helpful. And the the first one is a phrase that is maybe one of the most uncomfortable phrases to say <laughs> for some, <laughs> which is, I don't know. Mm. It's, mm. A, it's a really powerful three words, but a hard three words to say, isn't it? 
It is. And I often sometimes ask the question, when was the last time you can remember? You said, I don't know, in the workplace, right? And a lot of folks ironically respond, I don't know. <laughs> you know. I actually don't know. And But it's. I think we have a reaction to that word because we think that when we say, I don't know something, it makes us feel or look weak or makes us to feel or look incompetent. And that's not how we want to necessarily show up in the workplace, especially if we're a leader. But when you look at the research, it actually says quite the opposite, which is really interesting. You know, when you say, I don't know, you're demonstrating what's called intellectual humility. This idea that we don't know everything, that our our ideas and our beliefs and our answers could be wrong, right? And that's that's beautiful. And that's that, that that's helpful to know as a leader. And that when we express our intellectual humility by saying the phrase, I don't know, we don't know something, I don't know much about AI, you know, to, you know, that that is a helpful way to be seen as more communal and friendly. You're seen as less arrogant, and you're also not seen as less competent. You know, the research shows that you're actually seen as more competent because we want to all work with people that recognize their own limitations and that are constantly realizing that we need to explore and question and continue to search for new understanding because that's at the heart of creativity and innovation and all the things that we want in a culture. But it is uncomfortable to say, I don't know. It, it's scary, but it, it offers so much to ourselves and to the people that we work with. And on its face, it isn't the, f like before really diving into your work, I recognize the power of the phrase, I don't know. And I recognize the importance of helping people be seen and heard, but I hadn't ever thought about the connection between those two because they mm. seem different on their face. But when you think about it, the way you just articulated that by demonstrating that I don't have every answer, that there's a sense of vulnerability, that you're essentially opening up that opportunity for a connection for someone else to say like, wow, they don't have it all figured out either. Like I could yes. be a little bit more myself, right? Absolutely. Even when I walk off of a stage and I've said that on a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people, you know, I get people that come up to me and they're like, I so relate to you. You seem so relatable. And it's because we share that humanity, that, that, we, I'm not, I'm not a poly, I'm a messy, beautifully sort of constrained human that doesn't know everything. Other people recognize themselves in that. And like you said, it opens up a bridge for connection. It makes you seem more real because you're being genuine when you don't know things instead of trying to fill the space. I think we live in a culture, especially in the workplace, where there's this narrative that like having the answers and knowing things is the only way to show up in spaces. But sometimes I can really push people away. And, and I don't want to work with the person that always has the right answers and isn't willing to open up to the people that are around them. I'm trying to remember where this conversation came up. I think it was one of with uh, one of our members a few years ago, Scott, and they were working on as not so much in our academy, but as kind of like a side personal goal of connecting better with their kids. Mm -hmm. And they had been working on this as a practice for a while. And they said to me, one of the things that I've noticed is that if I stop to actually notice it. My kids are trying to connect with me all the time, mm. but I don't often recognize their 
reach out for attention of like, I want to watch this show with you, or will you Mm -hmm. go do this with me? Or sometimes we're, we don't notice the, what you would call the bid for attention. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I read that in the book, I was thinking how this happens in almost every relationship is Mm. people are in their own way trying to get our attention. And there's a phrase that you say is really helpful when someone is says something that's a bit for attention, and it's, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three easy, simple words to remember. And it, you're right. You know, I think that it, it's happening a lot, but we're not just aware of those bids for attention when, you know, our child says, oh my gosh, look at that bird. It's so cool. Or, hey, like, I wonder what sport they're playing on that field. Or even when you're, you know, you're a colleague's like, hey, I, I I learned so much on that project. You know, we kind of can just end the conversation there and not recognize that they're looking to be seen and heard in that moment, that their 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 bid for attention is they they want to engage with you. And so one great way of doing that is to say, tell me more, tell me more about how that project went or tell me, yeah, I want to really understand what are you learning about this topic that's really interesting you, whether it's like generative AI or horses for your kid, you know, that really starts to engage a conversation and you start to really learn more about where they're coming from. I think oftentimes we also miss biz for attention when it seems negative. So our kid comes back from a game, a sports game and they're like, oh gosh, I I didn't do a really good job at that. You know, like that was that was a bad game. I didn't I didn't play good in that game. Or our team member says, I really didn't do great on that project. And our inclination might be, no, you were great. You like you did just as good as anyone else out there on the field. You know, like and mm. look at that. You you like still won. Your team won. Or you know, no, the client really loved your work. Like you were you were so excellent. And what you do is you you. You're essentially saying that the way you view the world, child, or the way that you view the world, team member, is not accurate, or I'm trying to change that narrative, right? Uh. Versus if you say, tell me more, like, what was it about that game that you felt like you didn't you didn't show up the best that you could have? Like, can you tell me more about that? Or what? why, why don't you feel like you, you missed the mark on that project? But tell me more about that. I really want to hear this from you. That is such a different way to approach someone. And that is what true confidence building is because confidence is about self-trust. It's about you knowing that you have the right understanding of the world around you and that you have a trust in your own decisions and who you are. And when you take that away from someone by saying, what you just told me is wrong, and I'm going to tell you something that's exactly opposite because it makes me feel better, because it really alleviates my discomfort or because I want to fix this for you, that doesn't allow your child or your team member to feel seen or heard. So tell me more in that way to that kind of a bid for attention is especially important for us to be aware of. Yeah, indeed. And the word curiosity comes up more in your work than any other word. And for me, one of the great invitations you give is it's it's not just these words themselves, but it's also the how you ask it. Like, tell me more, I guess, technically isn't a question. It's more of like a statement or even, I guess it would be what's the right grammar demand or or (laughs) something, but it, but it's, it's asked in a curious way. It's asked in a, like, it's not a tell me more. It's a, yeah, tell me more about that. Like it's, 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 it's a light, it's a curiosity. If you're coming to that, that situation with that kind of a tone, it makes a difference in like what someone says and how much they open up. Absolutely. And it might not just be those three words, tell me more. It could show up as a lot of different sort of ways of 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 speech. It might be 
your your partner says they they love this book that they're you're they're reading and it's like oh what are you enjoying about it what's lighting you up about that book right like that is a question and that's helping them to share more about themselves or interests what they're you know what what's giving them aliveness right now in this moment um same for your kid that comes back from that sporting game like what 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 did you think that you didn't do so well at or that you failed at and then you start to uncover the assumptions that you have right like i might have a really really intense sort of definition of failure so much so that I'm trying to avoid it. And that it's scary if my child or someone who I love thinks that they've done that, that they've failed because I have my own assumptions and views on the word failure. But to you're that kid, they might just be like, that's just another day of failing. You know, like I'm learning and I'm growing and yeah. they have a totally different relationship to that word. So again, saying, tell me more is also a way of challenging and interrupting your own assumptions and your own biases that you have and that you carry with you everywhere into relationships. And in so many leadership situations, it's our assumptions and our biases that keep us from seeing around the corner of asking the question of getting the information from an employee or a client that might be the critical thing that actually helps to resolve a tough situation or to see an opportunity. So like this is... It's it's not just people being seen and heard. Yes, great. And when they're seen and heard, it opens up the door for so much else to be known and seen throughout the organization too. I mean, it's just a it's a great starting point for that. Mm. And one of the other phrases that you highlight, and this one, speaking of saying things different ways, it may not be the one you say out loud literally to someone else, but it's the one that you're certainly saying to yourself is, I understand that you're more than your job. And I pulled a quote here from you. You write, alleviating work-life conflict starts with simply acknowledging the reality that we are all impacted by our personal lives and relationships and the events of the world. What goes on outside of work will undoubtedly ripple into one's professional life. The word that comes up for me that's so critical in that is acknowledging. It's so key, isn't it? Acknowledging, witnessing, and and just recognizing the full humanity that someone brings to the table, right? And I think that it's sometimes, you know, someone comes, we see that someone's not being as generative or productive as usually they are. And we're like, okay, we want to get you back to that level. We want to get you like to that 100% where you're like really rocking it out for a business without first taking that step of, of recognizing what might what might be happening or going on in their life that there's there's something outside of their job it could be something that's happening in their personal relationships sickness the diagnosis it could be just general stress that's going on with their their family their aging parents their children or it could be something that's going on in the world maybe thousands of miles away you know they have their family is affected by a geopolitical crisis or a natural disaster and and that all plays into our emotions into the ways that we can or can't show up to work and when someone especially a manager or a leader acknowledges that you're more than just your job sees your full humanity and really works with you to 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 ensure that you can show up fully and that you can take the time when you need it and to ensure that your well-being is is optimized for i mean those are the types of people we want to work with that we follow from job to job those are the organizations that tend to be you know 
have a much healthier culture and thus lower turnover. More people want to work there. So it's it, there's all of these other business benefits. But for me, what's really most important is that that person sees themselves as more than just a worker in this organization. They are seen as a full, messy, beautiful human that's experiencing a lot of different things. And I'm so glad you mentioned world events, too, as part of this. We just happen to be recording this on a day when there's some pretty major geopolitical things going on. And there have been half a dozen in the last few years that have gotten a lot of attention from a lot of people. And any time that happens, I inevitably get the question from our members, some of the folks in our community, should I comment on what's going on on world events at the office and with my team? And I always think of this as a distinction between the word comment and the word acknowledge. And comment gets a little bit, it can get a little bit dicey of giving our opinion or stating what, how we're processing things, depending, of course, on situation and, and organization. But I think there's a place for all of us to be able to, at the very least, acknowledge what's happening, right? I mean, that's a huge part of being seen and heard for who you are. Absolutely. And and the power of acknowledging someone and acknowledging that they could be angry or in pain or are distressed in some way is really, really important. And, and we can feel so alone and we can feel a lack of groundedness when we go through these crises that that is what a sense of belonging and community is all about is it's not about commenting on the state of affairs or being a diplomat if that's not your job. You're in service of your relationships and making sure that people feel cared for and recognizing that they are going through a myriad of emotions, maybe because their families are in terror right now or living in terror. And, and so that is that is just so, so key. It's 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 humanizing and it can feel scary to to ask those questions, but it can open the doors for um, a lot of care and a lot of connection. The thing I will say, though, is that remember to have grace and to remember the power of consent that just because you're asking the question doesn't mean that it should be answered or that it needs to be answered or that they will answer, right? Everyone is on their own timeline and everyone has their own understanding of their own boundaries. And you know, I write about in the book, that there is a mother who has a daughter who has a, a prosthetic and they were all together in this sort of like a play date. And there was another child who, who was very fascinated by prosthetics and wanted to touch her prosthetic leg and wanted to ask a bunch of questions. And the, the, the mother and the daughter really like pushed back against that. They said, this is not okay. This is crossing our boundaries. This is not making her feel comfortable. And so a recognition that sometimes a curiosity can come from a place of of ableism or a place that you know we're not actually entitled to understand where someone's coming from if they're not feeling safe or willing to give that information that's why there's protections you know in the workplace around the types of questions you can't ask for instance when you're hiring someone right so not you know curiosity is earned it's earned from the trust and the relationship it's not something that you deserve to get the answers for yeah, and thank you for saying that. And and the other thing that's coming up for me too is you may not find agreement. In fact, you yeah. might 
acknowledge does not mean agree. You might yes. have someone tell you something that you think like, wow, I feel really different than this personally, yes, politically, true. faith, whatever. And yet that's not really what being seen and heard is about. It's about just acknowledging, like, I can see you as a human being who's struggling with something, who's having pain because of something happening, personal, professional, whatever, and still not agree on my own values. And But I just set that aside. I, mean, I think especially for leaders, like the ability to open up a space of acknowledgement and then to hear something that they don't agree with personally, and then just to set that aside. And I think it's like a really a really wonderful place I aspire to to get to, and I'm, I'm trying to coach myself on doing that better. And I think the more we can do that, the more we can help people just be seen at a difficult yeah. time. Yeah, I think that in some moments, in addition to setting it aside, the other option is to name it and to say, you know, here's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling uncomfortable or it's bringing up a mix of emotions for me, but I'm also just, I, I want to stay focused on you and where you're coming from, even though that is what my emotional landscape is inside of me, because I really value you. And even if we have different perspectives, you know, I want to see where you're coming from. And that is really, really powerful too, because you're letting them know how this experience or this conversation is affecting you, but you're also not letting it get away in the way of your connection to one another. I mean, I, I wrote about the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, uh, um, which was yeah. a really, really powerful endeavor that Indigenous people, First Nations, Métis, Inuit folks in Canada came together and shared the stories of what it meant to survive the residential school system. This is recent history. The last residential school in Canada closed in the 90s. I mean, many of us listening were alive for this. And it has led to the death and the trauma of many Indigenous people in Canada. And they created these spaces where Indigenous folks, residential survi school survivors could share their stories to non-Indigenous Canadians. And non-Indigenous Canadians were there to listen and to really be curious and understand what had happened to a group of people, how they were dehumanized and devalued. And yes, that might have made them really uncomfortable to hear as a non-Indigenous Canadian because it's extremely traumatic. And it was done in a trauma-informed way, you know, so, so they were trying to re-traumatize or have too much vicarious trauma erupt, but this is a reality of what people went through. And that bridge of understanding created so much connection between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians, and they were able to make these recommendations for civil society and for businesses. And it's such a powerful endeavor that we can bring into our own lives and our own businesses when conflict reaches a high point, that the direction of our curiosity matters, and that sharing stories and having spaces of acknowledgement are so, so important. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that we have a bias, especially in the professional space, to answers versus questions, like who has the answer. And mm. one of the other invitations you have is just a two-word question, and that's, who else? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's, who else? what's yeah. the power of asking who else? Yeah, sometimes when we think that only we have the answers or only the leadership or executive team will have the answers. We prevent ourselves from accessing lots of wisdom, fantastically creative ideas 
from folks who aren't in those circles, right? And that's sometimes where the magic is, where the the answers are. You know, I talked about how Pixar, for instance, one of the best movie making companies, I think, in on our planet today. And when they do film reviews, they bring everyone in, not just animators, not just writers, but you could be working in accounting, you know, and like you're there at the film review. And it's because there's an acknowledgement that because you're maybe further away from the material, because you have different life experiences than an animator or the writers that were in the room when that film was created, you might have really interesting takes and you might have really interesting suggestions that could just level up this film and make it so much more universal, so much more resonant and so much more impactful as a result. And that that who else is sometimes where else as well, right? Like I think about the innovations that we've seen in healthcare and the MRI machine and how children have been so, I mean, it's a terrifying thing to go through an MRI machine. I mean, even yeah. adults, like it, it's, it's not a pleasant experience. And so, you know, designers have thought, where, where is it that kids are going to where they're getting strapped into a machine and yet they're having lots of fun and they're really experiencing the zest of life. And, you know, that's like on a roller coaster or a theme park ride. And now you're starting to see these MRR machines that have like superhero or like, you know, in the jungle or space exploration and technicians are being trained to treat it almost like a ride, an experience. And that's really helping to alleviate the anxiety that a lot of kids are having when they're going through these, these machines. So it's who else, but it's also where else can we get inspired and where else can we take our curiosity so that we can learn and improve the work that we're doing. So easy, especially when we're struggling with something, facing stress to turn inward, to just talk to the people who are closest to us. And sometimes that's the opportunity to talk to someone else in the organization that we've never had that conversation with. And yeah. there's an element here of like being seen and heard of like helping, like being seen and heard with the people that you haven't even thought to have the conversation with that if mm -hmm. you go there, it's going to help to broaden your perspective and sometimes be the very thing you're looking for. Scott, thank you so much for all this perspective. I mean, we're just, we're just scratching the surface on everything that's in the book. Uh, there's, there's, you've been going around the world, teaching people about curiosity of working with so many different types of organizations, teaching these incredible courses, helping people to be seen and heard. And I'm, I'm curious as you've done that and have now put this all together in the book and been talking with people about it. What's something in the last year or two in doing all this that you've changed your mind on? Mm. Yeah, I, I think outside of just the scripts of like, I don't know and tell me more and I, I understand more than your job and who else and things of those natures, it's curiosity. It can be really experiential as well. It's not just the speech we have or the language you use, but it's also the experiences we, that we go on that can introduce us to new people, new ways of thinking. And ultimately, it can transform your own perspectives and beliefs. And I definitely have, have felt that recently, you know, I just as a response to the division and disconnection that I've been seeing and witnessing and feeling in my own personal life, but also seeing in our country, you know, I, I I wanted to bring a lot of this 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 muscle of curiosity out on the road. So I packed up my Prius 
to the to the brim. And I like went on the road and I went to the places where people seemingly hated me. Someone who's Asian American, who's uh, progressive, who's queer. And when people heard that I was going to go on this year long road trip and go to a Trump rally, they looked at me and then they looked at my route and they were really worried for me. I mean, some of them even said, you should bring a knife or pepper spray or something to protect yourself. And there's so much fear in our own lives today and, and in culture. And I just, you know, one of the things that I've learned and have been transformed on is that when I get curious about the things that I am most afraid of, whether that's groups of people who I have sort of a, a fear around because I think they're the enemy or I think they're going to hurt me in some way if I meet them or anything that I'm afraid about death, you know, one of the things that I think many people share a fear of, of dying and death. When I am curious about it and I see it as my companion, it reduces the anxiety and the fear that I have about those topics. And, and I actually found through writing the book that therapists, for instance, use curiosity to help people with phobias, right? By putting them into contact with the thing that they're afraid of. You're afraid of spiders? Okay, well, look at this photo of a spider. Okay, see the spider in the glass box. Okay, eventually, if you're down with it, you know, hold the spider. And it starts to, you know, by coming into contact with it and exposing yourself to it over and over in a positive way, you reduce your fear. And so it's it's really this beautiful sort of relationship where the things we're afraid of and the things that we fear and that give us anxiety, if we can turn towards it with curiosity, we can actually change our entire relationship to it. And, and that's something that I, I didn't realize or know until I like stepped into that Trump rally, started talking to people in line, gave them my full curiosity and realized they're not the people who I thought they were. And you no, know, we don't agree on a lot of things, but again, like you said, curiosity is not consensus. You know, a, a Christian is not going to change their beliefs when they understand and deeply acknowledge someone who is Buddhist or Muslim. You're just understanding someone in a deeper way, and that can lead to so much transformation. And, and that's what I've really experienced in my life. Scott Shigeoka is the author of Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. Scott, thanks so much for your wisdom. Thanks so much. So happy to be on the show, Dave. Appreciate you. If this conversation was helpful, a few related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 511, How to Be Present. Dave Crenshaw was my guest on that episode. We talked about the realities of the busyness in leadership and how do we actually do a better job at being present. And as he says in that conversation, with great responsibility comes great distractibility how we can get better at handling some of the logistics around that is the focus of our conversation on episode 511, a helpful compliment to this, of course. Also recommended is episode 520, How to Inspire More Curiosity. Shannon Minifee, CEO of Box of Crayons, was my guest on that episode. We talked about the importance of curiosity in our work. How do we do a better job with it? And how do we inspire it in others? And nobody is better and no team is better at that than the folks at Box of Crayons. Shan and her team, and of course their founder, Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit, have been helping organizations for years to do a better job at this at scale. So if you'd like to move past getting better, not only yourself, but perhaps you're thinking about your colleagues, a team, or an entire organization at getting better at curiosity, being more coach-like, 
box of crayons is a great place to start. Don't be thrown by the playful name. They're doing serious work for organizations and helping organizations and leaders to be more coach-like. Episode 520 for a conversation with Shannon on some of the beginning aspects of that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 590, How to Genuinely Show Up for Others. Marshall Goldsmith, probably the top executive coach in the world, joined me for that conversation. And we talked about the reality that so many leaders run into on a daily, in fact, hourly basis, where you go into one meeting at 9 a.m. and you're giving someone really bad news. Perhaps you're having a tough conversation about accountability or feedback, and then you go into the very next conversation, and it's a celebration about client success. And then the next conversation is something entirely different. It's about brainstorming and ideas. And shifting between those genuinely and showing up in a way that's genuine in each one of those moments is a constant challenge for almost every leader, especially leaders with a lot of responsibility. In episode 590, Marshall and I talk about his concept of singular empathy. Regardless of what may be next on your calendar, how can you show up in the moment to be present in a way that's appropriate for each one of those conversations and to do it in such a genuine way? Episode 590 for more there. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. One of the topic areas that we file episodes under is conversation. This one's going to be followed under there. You can get access to the entire library that I've aired since 2011 just by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. Of course, all of the episodes are available on all the public directories, but on the public directories and apps, we're not able to allow you to be able to search by topics. So we've built that into the website. We've built that into the free membership so you can find what's most relevant to you right now. It's one of the key benefits inside of the free membership. In addition, access to my interview notes and highlights. I have highlighted things from Scott's book and his article that are available to you for download, including my interview notes. I do that for almost every interview when I uh, have the ability to make that available to you. Uh, You can find that inside interview and book notes inside the free membership. All of the past books, interviews listed alphabetically, tons there for you, all of it free. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. And if you've been uh, diving around in the free membership for a while already, perhaps you're looking for a bit more. One of the things I'm doing every single month is writing a long-form article on a very specific topic. Most recently, I sent out an article on the case for leadership and management. We hear these terms tossed around a lot, leadership and management. How are they distinct? What are they? They're both important. They're both different. I talk in that article in detail about the distinctions between them and why it's important for leaders to be conscious of both in their work. It's uh, one of the many articles that are part of Coaching for Leaders Plus, in addition to several other benefits as well. If you'd like to find out more about Coaching for Leaders Plus, just go over to coachingforleaders.com. Plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest. Next Monday, I am glad to welcome back to the show Sheila Heen, one of the original co-authors of the book Difficult Conversations. After 25 years, they've just released the third edition of Difficult Conversations. Sheila and I are going to be having a discussion about how to help difficult conversations go better, something all of us face as leaders. And as they say in the Difficult Conversations book, a difficult conversation 
is any conversation you are not looking forward to having. You find that you're running into that occasionally, as I know I am. I hope you'll join me for that conversation next week. Wish you have a great week, and I'll see you back on Monday.